This week, Sanchez Energy files Chapter 11 in Texas. Illinois court set to consider constitutionality of $16 billion in issued GEO bonds. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Alex Brosman. Later in this episode, Mark Fisher dives into a few credits that experienced sharp sell-offs after reporting second quarter results. He'll explain what happened and discuss what's next. It's Sunday, August 18th. Houston-based E&P Sanchez Energy filed for Chapter 11 last Sunday night, three days before the expiration of a 30-day grace period triggered on July 15th, related to non-payment of a coupon on its six and one-eighth senior notes due 2023. The company attributed the bankruptcy filing to the financial difficulties associated with managing high levels of debt in an environment of declining and volatile commodity prices. In his first-day declaration, CFO Cameron George noted that a large portion of the company's acquisitions in the Eagle Ford Shale took place in a, quote, substantially higher commodity price environment, and that the company has faced, quote, unique challenges from the integration and management of the large and complex Comanche asset. Non-debtor entities include unrestricted subsidiary SNEF Unsub LP, which holds a joint development agreement, or JDA, pursuant to which SN Maverick and GSO affiliate Gavilan Resources operate the Comanche assets, and certain other unrestricted subsidiaries of the company. Earlier this year, Gavilan asserted that SN Maverick, a Sanchez debtor entity, was in default of the JDA and that Gavilan has the right to take over operations of the Comanche assets. On August 10th, Sanchez and GSO entered into an unsub-related tolling agreement pursuant to which GSO has agreed, during the tolling period, to not exercise any rights or remedies with respect to any potential investor redemption exit. The debtors also detailed certain issues related to Sanchez Oil and Gas, which the debtors describe as a full-service oil and natural gas operating company, privately owned by members of the Sanchez family. The debtors have a shared services agreement, which provides that SOG perform managerial, operational, and administrative service for Sanchez Energy, in addition to licensing certain data. During 2018, the total amount funded to SOG by the debtors for the shared services agreement was approximately $82 million. After a lengthy first day hearing on Tuesday, the debtors left court with all requested relief, having been granted by Judge Martin Isger, who approved the revised dip order on Thursday. However, the judge said at a telephonic hearing on Thursday that he, quote, made a mistake by not raising at the first day hearing his reservation regarding language in the order that provides for automatic modification of the automatic stay upon an event of default. Quote, I never signed a provision like that before, Judge Isker told the parties, noting that it would be unfair to the parties to strike the provision from the interim order now, Judge Isger said that he would allow the provision on an interim basis because the debtor's 13-week cash flow forecast shows sufficient liquidity, but he warned the parties that he reserved all rights not to grant such relief in the final dip order. Other energy companies signaled possible restructurings this week, including EP Energy, which, after having previewed the possibility last week, skipped a $40 million coupon payment on its 8% senior secured notes and entered into a 30-day grace period. Separately, Alta Mesa said that the borrowing base on its reserve-based loan was reduced from $370 million to $200 million 
and since combined borrowings and letters of credit exceeded the new borrowing base by $162.4 million, it would have to repay the excess amount and would do so over five equal monthly installments beginning in September. At July 31st, Altamiza had just $79.7 million of cash on hand. Also, late Friday afternoon, after hearing argument earlier in the week, Judge Dennis Montali issued a decision granting the motions filed by the Tort Claimants Committee, or TCC, and the Ad Hoc Subrogation Group seeking relief from the automatic stay in order to pursue state court litigation against PG&E to determine whether the debtors are liable for the Tubbs fire. Judge Montali granted the relief in part because doing so, he said, would, quote, definitively bring a resolution to the debtor's liability for the Tubbs fire while advancing the cases towards a, quote, just resolution of the claims of victims of the wildfires. The TCC sought relief from the state to allow coordinated litigation to be brought by eight individuals who are entitled to statutory preference for trial in the San Francisco Superior Court. In its motion, the ad hoc subrogation group noted that it and the TCC assert, quote, substantially similar causes of action, seek similar relief, and have claims based on the same underlying facts and evidence, but only sought to have the stay lifted as to the issue of liability. The ad hoc subrogation group would return to the bankruptcy court for any adjudication of damages issues and to have their claims liquidated, explained the motion. The stay relief decision follows an earlier decision Friday afternoon denying separate motions by the ad hoc committee of senior unsecured note holders and the ad hoc group of subrogation claim holders. They were seeking to terminate the PG&E debtor's exclusive periods for filing and soliciting a Chapter 11 plan. With respect to the stay, Judge Montali writes that in this case, cause exists to grant relief from the stay, both including and independent of the applicable case law factors that courts, quote, often use to determine whether such relief is appropriate. Judge Montali said that cause exists to grant relief from the stay because it will, quote, definitively bring a resolution as to the debtor's liability in the Tubbs fire and provide an important data point that most likely will facilitate the resolution of the wildfire tort claims in this case. The judge also notes that allowing the cases to proceed may provide guidance in the bankruptcy court's estimation proceedings. Earlier last week, PG&E's federal monitor filed on the docket its July 26th letter report on its vegetation management field inspections. The inspections are being conducted pursuant to that court's April 30th order adopting new probation conditions. According to the report, the vegetation management inspections are, quote, accomplishing their objectives, but work is ongoing. The report says that the monitor, quote, hopes to see downward trends in the findings of potential exceptions and to observe PG&E implement positive process changes and enhancements, noting that supplemental updates will be provided as the monitor's work progresses. Finally, last week, the PG&E debtors filed a monthly operating report for the period ended June 30th that disclosed a consolidated bank balance of $3.437 billion, up from $3.179 as of May 31st. Balance sheet cash consists of $3.036 billion at debtor Pacific Gas and Electric Company and $423 million in cash at debtor PG&E Corp. Last week, I traveled to Sangamon County, Illinois, where an Illinois state court considered whether a taxpayer could bring a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of $16 billion of general obligation bonds issued in 2003 and 2017. Associate Judge Jack D. Davis II ultimately took the matter under advisement, saying that there was, quote, a lot of material to review, but that he vowed to issue a ruling on a petition within the next 14 days. 
The petition was filed by Illinois Policy Institute CEO John Tillman, who argued in his proposed complaint that the bonds violate the Illinois Constitution's limits on the state's ability to incur long-term debt. Beyond its importance to the state of Illinois, the challenge is also notable for purposes of the municipal bond market because it represents the most recent attempt to invoke a constitutional debt limit as a means of invalidating previously issued debt. The issue is one that has permeated Puerto Rico's debt restructuring efforts and arose in Detroit's Chapter 9 case. Aside from the issues of standing and constitutional interpretation, the hearing focused on Warlander Asset Management, which is a co-plaintiff in the proposed complaint, but not a petitioner here. Prior to the hearing, Amici, Nuveen Asset Management, and Alliance Bernstein raised concerns over Warlander's ownership of credit default swaps and the potential for Warlander recognizing an, quote, enormous profit from the catastrophic default it has manufactured. During the hearing, counsel for Tillman confirmed that Warlander owns a CDS position, but discounted the importance of that fact for purposes of the court considering whether to grant the petition. The court acknowledged that Warlander's presence as a plaintiff to the proposed complaint, quote, clouds the analysis it must conduct. And turning as always to the island of Puerto Rico, on last Monday, Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority Executive President Eli Diaz said that the government water utility has no plans, quote, at the moment to restructure process senior bond obligations following the announcement last week that it has entered into agreements to restructure about $1 billion of federal government debt. The utility has, however, extended contracts with its main legal and financial advisors into fiscal 2020. Although PRASA officials have said that they would aim to restructure the utility's senior bond debt after working out a restructuring of the utility's federal loans, the two other sources close to the situation that Reorg spoke with indicated that the structuring is just too costly to pursue and that there are no immediate plans to go for it. Senior bondholders continued to ask for too much in exchange for reprofiling debt service, according to one source, and the short-term relief this would have provided is, quote, substantially achieved by the restructuring of the federal loans and by projected savings from a public-private partnership that is advancing, that source added. The source continued that demand for PRASA bonds remains strong and that some investment banks continue to look for restructuring opportunities, but added that PRASA has no intention of doing much else in terms of debt restructuring. The second source that spoke to Reorg said that some bondholders who are pursuing a restructuring have dropped their efforts because the bonds are priced too high and have sufficient collateral, so it would not warrant taking the discount that would come with restructuring. PRASA continued payments on its more than $3 billion in senior bonds, backed by a gross revenue pledge, excuse me, with total bond and loan debt topping $4.5 billion, but PRASA has struggled to fund its capital works program. In other Puerto Rico utility news, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's Executive Director Jose Ortiz said last Tuesday that the selection of a winning proponent for a long-term concession to operate PREPA's transmission and distribution system may be delayed by uncertainty over the amount of funding the government will approve to reconstruct the island's electric power system and the postponement of a court hearing on the 9019 motion seeking to approve the settlements embodied in the PREPA restructuring support agreement. The PREPA chief said that a proponent is now due to be scheduled in October, but that the Public-Private Partnership Authority, or P3A, said in January that it expected the selection of a proponent would take place during the third quarter of 2019, which ends September 30th. 
Ortiz said last Friday that Commonwealth officials working on the transaction from the P3A and the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or FAF, will decide at their next meeting slated for August 28th whether to push back the announcement. Ortiz spoke after a meeting at La Fortaleza with Governor Wanda Vasquez, FF, and P3A officials, as well as legal advisors who are working on the PREPA transaction and proposed RSA with PREPA creditors. Other top stories this week were opioid litigation update. Judge Polster appoints Ankara to, quote, assist in opioid MDL. Claire's to pay $245 million make premium on exit loan via proposed $700 million refi. Murray Energy reports adjusted EBITDA excluding unrestricted subsidiaries down 10.3%. Management not comfortable with present liquidity position. And now, as usual, here's Jim Holloway from Texas with the week ahead. Well, thanks, folks, and good morning. Greetings from Houston, where it's a brisk 97 degrees Fahrenheit, and there is actually a good bit on this week's calendar. Monday, August 19th, we had the sale hearing in Cloud Peak, whose assets were, of course, purchased by the Navajo Transitional Energy Committee this past week. And there's also continued hearing in Ditech. Tuesday, August 20th, exchange offer expiration from a Sable Permian. This deadline has, of course, been extended more than once, more than two or three times even, so we'll see. Confirmation hearing in First Energy, omnibus hearing in Windstream, and earnings from the sea drills. This would be both partners and limited. Wednesday, August 21st. Forbearance expiration for approach resources. This is for its credit agreement, and this too has been extended several times. A dip in conditional DS hearing in Bristow, a second day hearing in PES Holdings, along with a hearing on the Laurel Pipeline Settlement, and a bid procedures hearing for Barney's, the department store for the well healed. This is a true story. I once literally bumped into Axel Rose and Stephanie Seymour, his significant other at the time, out the Barneys on 6th Avenue in New York City. This would have been in the mid-90s. Rose was at the height of his notoriety as the lead singer of the first incarnation of the very trashy but incredibly fun L.A. rock band Guns N' Roses. He chose not to respond to my affable greeting. I did, however, observe Miss Seymour looking rather panic-stricken, so one assumes there was some sort of drama, and that's who shops at Barney's, or who used to. Anyways, Thursday, August 22nd, Sears, that's more my speed, but back in the old wish book days, there's an omnibus hearing. A disclosure statement hearing in Stearns, an omnibus hearing for a jury on, and a sale hearing in Insys. We also have, uh, well, look, here's a name that's been in the news lately, L Brands. We have earnings from L Brands, as well as from Algico. And Friday, good news, there's nothing on the calendar Friday. Now let's get out of here. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks a lot, Jim. Now here's Mark. So thank you, Alex. Uh, We're back with our segment post-earnings uh, where we talk about a few names that experienced uh, some volatility or actually in this case experienced some sharp sell-offs uh, subsequent to the companies reporting their earnings. This time we're going to talk about uh, three companies, Malincrot, Frontier Communications, 
and Valeris, formerly known as Ensco Rowan, the offshore driller. So let's start with Mallinckrodt. Mallinckrodt reported results on August 6th. The company made two significant announcements in the quarter. First, it said that it would indefinitely suspend its previously planned spinoff of its specialty generic segment. And second, it reduced guidance and revenue for its main drug, Acthar, saying it would be unlikely to exceed $1 billion in revenue in 2019. Prior to the release, the company's five and three quarter notes due 2022 were at 75 and recently were indicated at 61. The company's four and three quarter notes of 2023 were at 62 prior to the earnings announcement and were recently indicated at 49. On the now suspended spinoff, as recently as May, the company said that the spinoff would have resulted in up to $300 million in proceeds from debt at the new company being distributed back to Mallinckrodt. Originally, when Man- management announced the spinoff in December last year, it expected $1 billion of proceeds. Management said that the strategic aim remains to separate the business, quote, sooner than later. Increased uncertainties, however, created by the ongoing opioid litigation and unfavorable market conditions led the company to indefinitely suspend the spinoff transaction. Management stressed that nothing was holding back the spinoff transaction other than its belief that it was not currently in the best interest of the stakeholders, although the company could affect the spinoff today if it so chose. Management noted in it, it's now is now revisiting a range of options intended to ultimately lead to the separation of the specialty generics business, including a sale. Mallinckrodt said its revised expectation that Acthar Gel fiscal year 2019 sales would be unlikely to exceed $1 billion was driven in part by pressure in the reimbursement area. Payers are exercising a greater degree of scrutiny on specialty pharmaceutical products, it said, putting downward pressure on both new and returning Acthar patients. Management stressed that the new that the next 12 to 18 months would provide a clearer view of the long-term growth prospects of Acthar. Mallinckrodt remains in a number of legal battles, is in the middle of the national opioid multi-district litigation, and although unclear how this could ultimately affect liabilities, if any, it has been reported that the company was the top national manufacturer of opioids from 2008 to 2012. The company is also in a dispute with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services over the appropriate base price for Acthar. On August 2nd, Judge Thomas Hogan took under advisement arguments from both parties and said he expected to decide on the motions this month. Mallinckrodt had previously said that if CMS's decision on base pricing goes through, it would eliminate approximately 10% of the company's Acthar gel revenue, representing the entire portion of Medicaid sales, and could lead up to, to up to $600 million of non-recurring charges in the form of retroactive rebates. Last week, Humana filed a complaint against Mallinckrodt in the Central District of California, accusing the company of undertaking, quote, a complex multi-part scheme involving monopoly, bribery, racketeering, fraud, and other deceptive and unfair practices, all with the aim of inflating the price of Acthar gel. Humana said that it has paid more than $700 million over the, over more than eight years for Acthar. Mallinckrodt uh, has been reducing debt buying back bonds in the open market. In the second quarter, reduced debt by $302 million and subsequent to quarter end, purchased $71 million in principle of fixed rate debt. Moving on to Frontier Communications. So Frontier also reported results on August 6th. The company did not take questions on its call. In the release, management reduced guidance from EBITDA 
by $115 million and lowered operating free cash flow guidance almost in half from $625 million to the new estimate of $325 million for this fiscal year. On the call, the company said its finance committee continues to, quote, evaluate the capital structure, including considering strategic alternatives. So Reorg had reported on this finance committee in June. Frontier announced that Kevin B., Paul Keglovich, and Mosa Meiji had been elected to join Frontier's board of directors. They would serve on the board's finance committee, which the primary responsibilities are to evaluate Frontier's capital structure and consider, evaluate, and negotiate capital markets and or financing transactions and or strategic alternatives. Mr. Beeb has served as president and CEO of 2B Partners, LLC, a partnership that provides strategic, financial, and operational advice to private equity firms and companies in the technology and telecom industries. Mr. Keglovich served as CEO of, of Energy Future Holdings, and Mr. Meiji founded M3 Partners, LP, a merchant banking advisory firm focused on turnaround and special situations. For the quarter, company reported adjusted EBITDA decreased 0.2% year over year, but increased 1% sequentially to $882 million. The company generated $300 million in levered free cash flow consisting of $575 million cash from operating activities, less $275 million in capital expenditures. The company reported a a total liquidity balance of $786 million as of June 30th. Reported leverage was 4.69 times at June 30th. Some operating metrics from the quarter. Customer churn in the company's consumer business rose to 2.14% in the period from 1.99% the prior quarter. Average revenue per customer was 88.68, down sequentially from $89.14, which was due largely to video customer declines. Frontier's 2021 notes have fallen from about 62.63 from prior to the earnings announcement to indicated around 50. Interesting, uh, the curve has flattened out some with the next to mature bonds the company's 8.5% notes due 2020, falling from 75 in July to recent indications of 60. Lastly, wanted to talk about Valaris, uh, formerly known as Ensco Rowan, the offshore driller. Uh, in the company's first full quarter since acquiring Rowan, it burned $375 million of free cash flow and said offshore recovery would be slower than its initial 2019 expectations. CEO and President Tom Burke said, quote, the recovery for the offshore drilling industry continues to steadily progress, albeit at a slower pace than we expected when we began the quarter or began the year sorry this is due to a more gradual improvement in the global floater market where despite higher spot utilization we anticipate limited further pricing improvement in the near term due to a number of regs completing contracts and recontracting opportunities with relatively short durations he continued by contrast we have observed broad-based modest improvements in the jack-up market as evidenced by our recent contracting success for harsh and benign environments Environment assets across a wide range of geographies. Valaris did uh, reiterate its synergy target of at least 165 million and commented that by the end of the second quarter, it had completed more than 50% of all integration related activities and achieved approximately 80 million of annual run rate expense synergies. 
in terms of dealing with its capital structure. Management views the revolving credit facility as, quote, an important source of liquidity as it, quote, proactively addresses its debt and cost of capital. Management specifically highlighted Valaris's $11 billion of third-party value gross asset value paired with its flexibility to issue both secured and guaranteed debt. The company said it will also consider, quote, all avenues of asset monetization. In July, the company completed a tender for certain mid-maturity bonds within its combined capital structure, purchasing $952 million of principal of notes for $724 million in cash. According to the release, pro forma liquidity totaled $2.7 billion, consisting of approximately $400 million of cash and $2.3 billion of revolver availability. Subsequent to quarter end, Valaris drew down $125 million of its revolver to pay $201 million maturity on July 29th. Of note, the company's revolver capacity is scheduled to drop to $1.3 billion for the $2 billion current capacity next month. The company's Rowan bonds due 2025 have fallen from about 75 prior to release to indicated at 59 on August 13th and the, new, and the newly named Valaris bonds due 2025 have fallen to 55 from 75 prior to the release. So that's it for me. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And Alex, back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Alex Brosman.